Amen. You may be seated. Indeed, we have just sung of the holiness of God. The word holy means set apart, different, not like the rest. And indeed, He is our glorious and holy Creator God. This morning, we come to look at His creation and what He's done. If you don't have a sermon outline, as we said, just lift your hand. These fine gentlemen will be glad to give one to you. If you're new with us online, I want to encourage you as well to download the outline, and uh, you'll be able to have it. Now, some of you have come, and you, this is the first time you've come, and you see this outline, and you go, wow, that's, that's four pages of outline. Um, will I be able to make it work on Monday morning? And um, we, we will give you a break to call your boss and tell him that you'll be late, but um, uh, we will. We will. In fact, the reason we do the outline is so that we can move quickly, and yet you can still get all that you can out of the message. There's two reasons really for it. One, so you can pay attention now, and number two, so you can review later, especially on a message like this that I believe will be very important. Well, um, four times a year we hold something called men's boot camp. The ladies have a Bible study and the guys have a Bible study, and it is a great time where we get together a bunch of guys, either 6 a.m. on Thursday morning, 6 p.m. on uh, Thursday evening. We have either breakfast or, or dinner, and we, we study a book together. We read a book together, a Christian book. Well, this last, this last men's boot camp, one of the guys that came in late got to sit right next to me, who is leading. So that's what happens if you come late. Sometimes you, you have to sit next to the guy who's leading it. And uh, I got to know this gentleman, and as I got to know him, um, and we talked a little bit, I, I just asked him, well, how did you come to the Lord? What, what happened? He was obviously a, a strong believer. And uh, as we began to talk, he said, well, um, I was an atheist. If I remember the story correctly, he said I was an atheist. And um, I took a job out in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Now, has anybody been to Los Alamos, New Mexico? It is an absolutely beautiful place. And um, for those of you who don't know, um, that is where um, part of the great work of the atomic bomb was developed. In fact, in our nuclear arsenal today, is not only developed there, but it's maintained there. So there's very, very high-end, top-secret, highly guarded and secure facilities that are there, some of the most uh, secure facilities in the world. And uh, this gentleman uh, went there and had a job as an atheist. And one of the things that he noticed while he was there and working was there was a bunch of these people that he worked with that were very high-tech engineers, a lot of PhD guys that were there, and they all went to church. And he found that strange. Not all of them, but many of them went to church. And then one of them said, hey, um, this weekend, why don't you come to church with us? And he just thought, you're a nuclear engineer. He went to church, and he began to hear the gospel. And he began to read the account of creator God, sustainer God, designer God. And what he came to discover was that it would take more faith to believe that all of this just happened than it would take to believe that a God who has laid out such a plan as this actually created the world for his glory and for our good. And so this morning, we're going to look at this creator God. I was, I was blessed by his testimony. What he, what he said it kept coming back to was, it kept coming back to God. And um, I have heard that testimony numerous times, 
people that in their intellectual pursuits of the world and even Josh McDowell and various others that set out to prove Christianity and the Bible a farce come to see the message of what it says and to embrace it. And so indeed we come to, in the beginning, God. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible. This is going back to the beginning of the beginning, and uh, we want to see this this morning. And I want us to look um, first in your Bible at Genesis 1, 1, um, and we're going to look at three verses there, and then we will skip over to the Scripture that is also on the sheet. And so, uh, but we start at Genesis 1, 1, and it's on the screen as well for you as well. Let's look. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. Now, in Genesis 1, we can see a lot of things. We can see a lot of things about God, but I want us to notice a few things from Genesis 1, 1, and this is on your outline there, on some important observations for this moment. So, skip down there to look at important observations for this moment. In Genesis 1, it reveals much about who God is. Fill that in. This is describing who God is. And then notice here, he is, in Genesis 1, we see that he is pre-existent. In the beginning, God. So it doesn't talk about the beginning of God. It's talking about in the beginning of what we know as time, in the beginning of the world as we know it, God is already there. We could say that he is eternally pre-existent. He's always been. But we also see something else here in Genesis 1.1. We see that in the beginning, God did what? He created. And so he is, fill it in, creator. So he is preexistent and he is creator. And then look in verse 3. It says, and he said, let there be light. And what happened? And there was light. So what we also see about God here is that His Word is powerful. It's powerful. It creates. It's through His Word, and it's by His Word, and it's by His will that all things are created. Now, I wish that I had that kind of power when I spoke, but I simply do not. In fact, I am very, very far from that as all of us are. But God, when He speaks, we would look at the Latin idea of this, and He speaks and He creates something called ex nihilo, which means from nothing. Now, Daniela, who's sick this morning, um, Tortisi or Nietzsche Bello or George Ramos or some of the other chefs and cooks in our church, they can create things, and they can create some things that are very, very glorious but they do not create ex nihilo. They have to have ingredients to work with. But when God creates, He creates from nothing. 
So he is preexistent. He is creator. His word is powerful. And then we go down to verse 26. And this is the box on the page um, in front of you. And let's read verse 26 and 27. Look what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 And you say, why is it broken out like that? Because the writer of this, Moses, breaks this out in a bit of a poetic form. And in a bit of a poetic form, it reemphasizes what God has done, and it's for a special emphasis. That's the reason that the syntax changes. That's the reason it looks differently. There's something going on here in the Hebrew that is saying This is especially important. So look what happens in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What word do you see there three times? Created. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created him. Do you think that God wants us to see something here? When you see repetition in the Scripture, very often it's time to look and see what it is. When we see the breakout of the syntax and it's different, it's time for us to see what it is. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing, underline that, every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree that with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Verse 30, and to every beast of the field uh, of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, and God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Can you circle those last two words? Very good. If you remember, as we go through Genesis 1, it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But at the end of all of this, it comes to say, and it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So this ends the six days of creation, coming to the day of rest in this. And what we see, the third one, there underneath number one, we not only see that God is preexistent creator and his word is powerful, but we also catch a hint that he is triune. Triune. That means three in one. You see both of those there. Tri means three. Un means one. So this God is triune. We get a hint of that. We get a hint from the word Elohim that's in the plural. We get a hint from that. We see the Spirit of God is moving upon the waters. And then in verse 26, look what it says. This is really the first 
grammatical reference that is quite clear. That it says, let us. It doesn't say, let me make man in, our, in my image. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is pointing to what the rest of the Bible reveals eventually is the three persons of the Trinity. One God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Bible fits together like lock and key. From the very first chapter of the Bible, we see the essence and the nature of God. We see the work of God. And if we go all the way through the Scripture, God is continually revealed in this way, that He is a powerful God that has special purposes and special plans. And then at the end of uh, the entire Bible, we see this Father, Son, and Spirit gloriously revealed in the hall of heaven as we see this. So we see this triune God. But not only do we reveal, do we see Genesis 1 reveals much about God, but it also reveals much about, fill it in, about man, about man. Verses 26 through 27, we'll look at that, but the word man is actually the word Adam or Adam. That is literally the Hebrew word for man. It's what we use as the name Adam, but that is a Hebrew word. And here it's used for humankind, not just man in, in himself, but the picture is very often, not always, sometimes it's talking about the male aspect of man, but often it's talking about humankind. So look here with me that we see in verse 26 and 27 that, number one, we see that we are created. Fill that in. So God is creator, and we are created. And that's seen that in Psalm 100 and verse 3. It says, for it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Same thing in Psalm 95 and verse 6, that God creates us. Now, it's important that it says that because humanity has started to say, oh, no, we created ourselves. We, 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 we evolved into ourselves. It's interesting that long before that idea was ever presented, that Psalms is saying, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves, knowing that that would come in to the mind of man. We are created. Number two, we are like God. In verse 26 and verse 27, we see that. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, you may want to put underneath that where it says, we are like God, but we are not God. Because that too comes into the mind of man. That you're God. You can be God. You can become a God. You already are God. Somebody in this room says, yeah, I know. I'm married to someone who thinks that. And it's part of what family camp is about. You're in the right place. But what does it mean to be made in his image and in his likeness? Well, there's several different profound things that, that can be, but at the very least it would be these, that, that God is relational. He's relational within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's made us to be relational. He's spiritual. God is spirit, and he's made us to be spiritual. We obviously have a spirit. We are intellectual as God is intellectual. That means the ability to be rational and to think, to have cognitive ability. Creative. Our God is a creative God. 
You know, I'm a scuba diver. I love to dive. I love to go down and look at the reefs. It's fun to do during the day. It's fun to do even at night. All these different things come out at night. And, you know, there's very often that um, either me and a friend or me and Cheryl, Cheryl and I often uh, dive together, and we will look at a piece of coral, and it's just beautiful. It's amazing. And then these little fish will come swimming up, and it's almost like they have lights on them. They don't, but they, they, they're rather iridescent. They, they, it's just unbelievably beautiful, and we see how beautifully creative it is. And then I'm standing there um, this last week, and somebody was standing next to a beautiful orchid. And we turn around, we look at the orchid, and I thought, man, that's like a coral reef. That is just majestic. It's beautiful. This flower is amazing in the way. To, and then you can be driving along and, you know, you're, you, maybe you're just at the right place where the sun is setting and you look and you see the glorious paint that God paints the, the sunset or the sunrise. We see this God who creates and he's creative. And then we can look at art. We can look at buildings. We can look at things that human beings create. So in a way, we're like God in that we come to this ability to create. He made us in His image. We also see that God is a ruling God. He rules over the day, rules over the night, He rules over all of creation, and He invites us to rule with Him. Look what it says in verse 26 at the top of your page. In the middle part of the verse, it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Look down in verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So it's repeated, this is a ruling God. What we also see about man is that we are male and female. This is very clear from the beginning. And it's in fact, it's in the special section of Scripture that is broken out from the rest in verse 27. So look at verse 27. In fact, let's read verse 27 out loud together. Look what it says. Let's read it out loud. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Isn't this beautiful? I mean, God is, God is making very, very clear how he has made us. And then number three, or excuse me, number four here on the, the mark there, we are special in this creation. We are special. In verse 128, look what it says and underline those first four words of verse 28. And God blessed them. That's a very important phrase. This is, this is a special blessing that God doesn't, doesn't we don't see this being said to all of the other things that he made. We don't see this. It's, it's that this is the special part of his creation that he has blessed them. Not only has he given them life, but he has given them an image like his. And this is a very special pinnacle of his creation. I recognize that in this day and time, we can be truly amazed at the animal kingdom. And the more we learn about the animal kingdom, it's so interesting. And many of you have watched, um, I think, Blue Earth, is it called Blue, no, Blue Planet, right? Blue Planet, maybe on one of the channels, or 
um, the Earth or some of the others, either Netflix or Prime or National Geographic or Smithsonian, has created these glorious 4K videos that will just highlight aspects of creation, whether it's geologic or biologic or astronomic. You, you, you just be able to go in and you begin to see all of these things. And as we see the animal kingdom and the glory of the animal kingdom, we can be amazed at what animals can do. They share the facts of what dolphins can do, or they share the facts of what salmon can do, or they share the facts of what a simple bee or a butterfly can do. And we're just amazed that they're able to do those things. But you know, for all of the amazement of a dolphin or the mind of an elephant or various other things that seem to have tremendous um, abilities. The creation of man is vastly different from everything else that has been made. In the modern world, many of the modern schools of thought would suggest to you that we are simply one of the animals. We have no more right to anything than any other animals. What gives us the right to, to exist to another's detriment or consumption. There's many that would say that, that we, we simply don't have a special place, and we're often condemned. Now, there can be abuse of the environment for which we should be corrected, but we need to recognize here that God is very specifically saying that humankind are His crowning achievement in creation. We've talked about this from time to time recently, but it's something that I believe that our church needs to hear and see again and again, because the messages of the world are not about this. The messages of the world are suggesting otherwise. But we, we come to recognize that God has made us in His image, and then He relates to us in His grace and in His glory, and that's a very, very important part of our existence, and it determines much about who we are. You see, fill this in, number three, we also see that God contains, excuse me, that Genesis 1 contains first, God's first instruction to mankind. His first instruction to mankind is seen in verse 28. So after he creates them, look in verse 28, it says, and he blessed them, and he said to them, and then look what it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Four phrases here, four words here uh, that have everything to do with the fact that we are called to go and to fill the earth. God called us, He designed us, He created us, and He tells us, He commands us to go and to fill the earth. So this brings glory to God when human beings have human beings that fill the earth. Now once again, I want to just remind you that the message today is very different from that. The message today is, oh, we're overfilling the earth we got to stop filling the earth. we got to control the population. Stop making babies. We're going to consume everything. And there's, a, there's an alarm in this. And I want you to see that the, the very often the prevailing thoughts of the culture go against some of the most basic, the most basic. I mean, we're talking chapter 1 
pictures and instructions that God would give us. Notice number four. Genesis 2 contains God's specific creation of woman. So go over to chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, and there you see the beautiful picture of the fact that this male that God created, he looks at him and says, he is incomplete. This is not good for him to be alone. He needs a mate. He needs one specially made that he can care for her and she can care for him. That this relational God has made us to be relational. This creative God has made us to be creative, to be procreative. And so this is what brings him glory. This is his design. And so he very specially makes women. I, I think it's really good to recognize that when God created women, he said, it's done. It's complete. So ladies, when God finished creating your kind, he said, now it's done. That's beautiful. That's his grand plan. That's his special place. Look at number five here. Genesis chapter 2 contains God's specific creation and design of fill it in of the family. This is God's design of the family. And this is found right here in the second chapter of the Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 right there underneath number 5. And let's read verse 24 and let's read verse 25 together. I'd like to ask you to read it out loud. Everybody go ahead and clear your throat. <clears throat> you ready? You ready to read? Okay, let's read it. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Oh, dear friends, this is, this is creation at its purity. This is creation at its finest. This is creation at its finality at the beginning. And this is God's design. That a man shall come and hold fast to his wife, and he shall leave, she shall leave her family to be a new family. You see, this is God's design. You see, all of this, fill this in, all of this is affirmed by Jesus and the New Testament. So it's not like Genesis 1 and 2 or all of Genesis is somehow hanging out there by itself that nobody relates to. No, Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of everything that is here and I am the one. John would say to us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing came into being that has come into being without Him. John is making clear to us that Jesus is the Creator God. So if this was all of God's grand plan, what happened? Why is it not like this? How did we get so off base? Notice here with me at the statement at the top. How did we get from blessed and go procreate to every imaginal perversion from God's, underline it, original design? 
How have we gotten so far off track from that? We have to see what happens in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the rebellion and the fall of humanity. You know, a lot of times we'll just call it the fall. We need to be careful about that. Fall as if we stumbled. Fall as if it was by accident. Fall as if it was, oh, we're a victim. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. You remember those, you know? Like I, you know, that's... But we need to recognize that the fall is rebellion. That God said don't and we said, I will. This is the rebellion that Jesus said, excuse me, the, the Father says to Adam and Eve that the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And it was at that moment that death enters into the world. The fall occurs and we become depraved in our minds. Look at Romans chapter, chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is a great place for you to go and to look at the the implications of the fall. What happens because of the fall? Total depravity. Fill that in. Total depravity of our fallen condition. We come to see that there's nothing we won't do. And so as time goes on, we see that all through the ages, our society has an attempt to destroy the image of God. Fill that in. Our society has an attempt to destroy the image of God in gender and in marriage. You see, we've, we've noticed this recently, but I, for the Sunday morning crowd, I want you to see this this morning here. I want you to become part of the Wednesday night crowd. I want you to become part of the regular crowd as we, as we see that there's, there's very valid things that we study here. Notice here, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You say, friends, are the nations not raging? The nations rage, whether the nations of America and all the different peoples of America, or whether we talk about the nations of the world, nations mean ethnos, the peoples of the world. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Who is His anointed? Right out there to the side, Jesus This is his anointed one. And look at what they say. Verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, we don't want to be bound by the Lord. We don't want to be bound by what he says. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, earth's response to God is, leave us alone, let us do what we want. And we're seeking to break off his cords from us. And God says, not so fast. In fact, what you're doing is utterly foolish. It's almost like, you know, the six-foot-two dad who is standing there with his um, 28-inch toddler. And the six-foot-two dad standing there with his 28-inch toddler, the, the toddler, in his rage or in his playfulness, he's swinging at the dad, you know? And the dad just has his hand on the kid's head 
just holding him there while the kid is swinging into the air. I mean, that, that's part of what we see here. This is what God says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. He holds them in their folly. But as for me, I have set my king on the holy hill, verse 6. Remember with me Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. What does it say? That every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, that's what is, that is the picture that is here in verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And everyone is going to confess him eventually. But look at number two. In this present time, we also see that the world's exaltation, we see the world's exaltation of evil and condemnation of good. And I want you to notice Isaiah 5, verse 20. This is a very key passage for Christians, for Sheridan Hills to be very aware of in this present day and time. In fact, I'd like to ask you to put a big circle around that whole passage right there, Isaiah 5, verse 20. This is worth your meditation this week. This is worth you spending some time thinking about this passage. Look what it says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But my friends, that is exactly what mankind often does. We will take that which is said to be good and say, no, that's bad. That is what we see happening in our culture today, that that which is said to be good and of God, some are saying, oh, no, that's bad. And that which is bad, we are saying, oh, no, this is good. Friends, this is the picture of man's rebellion, of humankind's rebellion. Now, over the next few minutes, for those of you who enjoy culture and a little bit of history and you you enjoy thinking through, how did we get where we are? How do these things happen? What are the progressions in our particular culture? Some of you are going to go, oh, cool, I never thought about that, or that makes sense. I I think that that's going to happen over the next few minutes. Look Look at number three. In both American and European culture, we have experienced steadily accelerating abandonment, steadily accelerating abandonment of God's Word and God's design. We have abandoned this steadily. We've we've gone away from His Word, and we've gone away from what He has obviously done. I want you to notice this. From the 1850s to the 1950s, some very big things were happening in both European and American culture. And there was, a, there was a lot happening in the scientific realm, and listen to this, and in the realm of philosophy. And in both of those realms, what we see happens during this hundred years is biblical Christianity, which was very, very um, prevalent in both America as well as Europe, biblical Christianity gradually gave way to cultural Christianity. We went from having a biblically faithful view, doctrine, and practice to having a cultural take on the Bible. 
Now, you could, you could sit and kind of start thinking about that and start thinking about how did things go away from Scripture. I want you to notice a few things that are here that I've outlined. Number one, the, the Bible knowledge declined and worldliness increased. And that means sound doctrine declined during these hundred years and non-belief increased. You see, there was a time before the 1850s that almost no one, it would occur to them not to believe in God. There, there was very few that would not believe in God, especially that had been raised in, around Europe and the influence of the gospel around the Mediterranean world. But, but we begin to see that that becomes a very prevalent thought as modernism and as rationale and as the enlightenment comes along and the scientific age expands, we see this movement toward non-belief. And then notice this, the last one, true and careful Christian worship declined, and as true and careful Christian worship declined, idolatries increased. So worldliness increases over this hundred years, non-belief, and idolatries, all kind, worshiping other values, whether it be money or sex or fame or pro, quote-unquote human progress. And so we come to number four. We are now at a break glass moment for the true church and Christian families. We're now at a break glass moment for the true church and Christian families. And I, I want you to notice this where I get the title for the message. And this is where the title of the message comes from. Outside of my office over in the other building, there's a, there's a little pull station that is there. If the building is on fire, you break the glass and you pull it. This is one of those moments that, that we come to recognize that we're at a break glass moment where the world has gone further and further and further away from God's original design and His original intent. You see, from the 1960s to the present day, so we got up to the 50s. Well, when we come over to the 90s, everybody would recognize pretty much in this room, except for the really younger ones, maybe you're still studying. There's a lot of stuff that we'd say, oh, don't look at the 1960s. Um, but, but we start to look at that, and we go, what in the world was going on? Well, this was just the outcome. This is, this is how it occurs. You see, cultural Christianity has given way to what we would call total secular humanism. Total Christianity is given way to total secular humanism. This is the exaltation of man. This is the exaltation and, of man and the exclusion of God. Secular means non-religious. It means without spirit. And so here we come to, this is just pure humanity, the idea that mankind is basically good and getting better all the time. You see, Christian families need to recognize that the building is on fire. Friends, we now live in a culture that is expressly against and playing out in every imaginable way a culture that is bent against God and is seeking to remove itself from God and to remove God from itself. If you're not aware of this, if you're a Christian family and you're, you're not aware of what all is happening with the, with the media 
and the influencing and the messages that are making their way into the minds and the hearts of people, my friends, listen to this message. You see, Christian families need to realize that the building is on fire and immediate and drastic action is necessary to avoid calamity and destruction. If the building was on fire, you would take action. You would get out. You would protect yourself. You would go to your children and rescue them. And church family, it is important that we recognize that this is where we are. As a little bit more of an expansion of how this happens, secularism leads to moral freefall. That is very important for us to see, that when we remove God, we'll do anything. When there's not the restraint of righteousness and they're not the restraint of God's command, then we follow the flesh, and the flesh will lead anywhere. People ask, what happened? How did this happen so fast? And that's, there's, I've heard many of you, I've heard others, I've watched, you know, various programs and read lots of blogs and articles and everything else over the last four or five years, and everybody is saying, what happened? How did this happen so fast? Well, the answer to that is what? It didn't. It didn't happen so fast. This has steadily been happening. This is steady. I mean, Keith Green wrote a song 40 years ago that said, the church is asleep in the light. And we just can't see because we've been blinded by the culture. My friends, as the Enlightenment took hold, modernism took hold, the scientific age took hold, the industrial age took hold, so we're going back before the 1920s, eventually we come to the 1920s and we see a very marked shift happen in the 1920s. And you've seen evidence of that before in documentaries or in certain aspects of culture from the 1920s. A lot of things changed in the way men and women dressed, in the way they related. Things changed. There was, there was an element of society. There was an upper-level aspect of society that became very, very permissive. And very, there was a lot of things that would have never been done before that had started to happen. And there are philosophical reasons behind that and theological reasons behind that of what was happening in the universities, what was happening in the higher schools of thought, and what was not happening in the pulpits. And so there came a moral shift in the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the profitable, wealthy 20s. There became an excess that was pursued. And that would continue for about 40 years until there was less and less of of true biblical teaching and doctrinal thought in our culture to the point where it gave way, cultural Christianity gives way in the 1960s to true moral change. So there were little shifts, and then there was a major moral change. Now, a lot of people have often thought, well, that was the sexual revolution. No, the revolution hadn't happened until, go ahead and fill it in, now. You see, and I'll explain why I would say that the 1960s was more a moral change as opposed to a moral 
revolution. You see, and I've outlined it here a little bit, progression through philosophy, theology, sociology, economics, and don't you think technology has also played a role? I mean, all of those things have played a role, but it, it often starts with either philosophy or theology, depending on what school and what realm that you're in. Theology affects philosophy, but very often, unfortunately, philosophy affects theology. And that is, once it, once it happens at that level, it takes about a generation or two to make it to the street. And that's what we see happening. You see, there's a progressive decline in sexual morality. This is abandoning God's design. Now, the, one of the first major steps in that was divorce. Fill that in, divorce. Now, Henry VIII has the most famous divorce in the history of mankind so far. I mean, you thought Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson was famous. The, the one from Henry VIII, and I, I don't know, maybe Bill Gates is coming out. I mean, these, I was so disappointed to hear that. I mean, but, you know, just all of these different characters that we see. But divorce, kingdom split over Henry VIII's divorce. And it didn't become popular until later there started to be some movement um, and, it, and it increased and come to the 1920s and we see much more increase. It was very hard to get a divorce. And so in 1969, Ronald Reagan signed the first law enabling no-fault divorce so that it would be much easier to get a divorce. And then there's the progression of contraception. Now, you would say, okay, so contraception, why, why is that a problem? Well, contraception, you see, the idea is sex is less connected to having babies. So it becomes more permissive, more available to you. There's, there's less of an inhibition to this. So contraception becomes very popular as technology grows. And then eventually we have the legalization of abortion. So now abortion is an option. Now abortion is readily available. And you see, all of these things are, are going against God's moral design. Remember with me, what did he say? Fill the earth and subdue it. Go, multiply, fill the earth. Abortion is a, is a statement against that. In fact, the Hyde Amendment takes our funds and pays for abortions, not only in this country, but in other countries. And very often it's about, oh, overpopulation. When the Lord has said, go, multiply, populate the earth, this brings glory to me. So the legalization of abortion in 1973. And this also leads to more and more increased fornication and adultery acceptance. It was during these years that you say, what is fornication? Fornication is having sex outside of marriage. This is you're not married and you're having sex. And then adultery is having sex with somebody who is married. And the, the picture that in 1985, when I was in high school, one of the number one hits on the radio was a, a song called Secret Lovers. It went on and on and on. Secret Lovers. We're not supposed to be doing this, but we are. And it kind of ends with how can something that feels so right be so wrong? They're recognizing that it's wrong and singing about it to the point where it becomes a number one hit. Why? Because that was reflective of what was in the culture. 
do what you want. And then we see the increased acceptance of cohabitation, cohabitation, the whole picture of that you don't really need to be married, you don't really need to court, just go ahead and go ahead and get married. I mean, excuse me, go ahead and, and live together. And in getting in living together, it, it short circuits so many different aspects of what committed love was designed to show us. And then in 2015, the legal homosexual marriage passes the Supreme Court of the United States and sends out that precedent not just to the United States but to much of the world. Now, certainly there were other cities in Europe, or, or countries in Europe that had homosexual marriage, but as we did that, many other countries have been pursuing that. And then we come to, in the last two years, an utter explosion of something that we've come to call LGBTQ+. Friends, we are at a true crossroads. We are at the midst, in the midst of a moral revolution. The popularity of LGBTQ speaks for itself. Um, we can hardly go anywhere and see hardly anything that does not recognize a moral revolution. I have a few images here to make us think about this. When we talk about moral revolution, this is a fight in the courts and for legal rights. So we see it all over Washington, and we see legislation that has, has names like the Equality Act, the idea of this is all about equality, and this, is, this has nothing to do with um, that which is detrimental to society, but that which is for society, we see at the highest levels of government it being endorsed and promoted and celebrated to the point where all across the nation we have mornings where men dressed as women by the hundreds, by the thousands come in and read books to people, to children, and parents gladly sit by and think it's cute having no idea what's being planted into the minds and in the hearts of children. We are truly in a revolution to the point where all of this, including the whole ideals of it, are showing up on cereal boxes for you to stare at during breakfast. Blue's Clues now, as of last week. thought, well, not Blue's Clues. Oh, yeah. Friends, there is no corner, there is no stone being left unturned. So the popularity of the LGBTQ movement is showing us that the culture is running fast, the building is on fire when it comes to biblical values. Now part of the problem of using LGBTQ in our vernacular um, is that it kind of sanitizes a little bit of this, and you need to be, I believe, you need to be sensitive to this. I think you need to recognize what this does. We need to recognize that when we talk about L, we're talking about lesbian. That means female homosexuality. When we talk about gay, generally speaking, we're talking about male homosexuality, generally speaking. Though you can be a gay woman or a gay man, the idea is 
homosexuality. We need to recognize that. Bisexuality is one who is open to both heterosexual and homosexual relationships, either in romantic or sexual relationships. Transgender, this is the rejection of one's sex at birth, seeking to identify as or attempt to become the other sex. And this is anything from perhaps mental or cross-dressing to the mutilation of sexual organs and really failed attempts to recreate sexual organs um, through surgical means. Now, if you have not seen in his image the film that we showed recently, you need to see this. And as a Christian, you need to see this. As a non-Christian, maybe you're new to all of this. This is a glorious and helpful film for you to see. I, I want you to notice. But the plus, let's don't forget about the plus, because the plus is, underline it, the sky's the limit. This is polyamory. This is, this is any number of people being in uh, a, a rather orgy-type love or an orgy-type activity. This is bestiality, and this is on the books. People are seeking to marry their dog or their cat or, or various other things. And, and some, whether it's farm animals or whether it's pets, engaging in sexual acts with them. This is pedophilia. There are groups seeking to remove the stigma of pedophilia. Some of those organizations have been in existence since the 1960s in our country and are still moving along today. In fact, most recently, the idea of incestuous marriage. That a father who procreates a daughter, that he would be free to marry her. That's that's not a fairy tale. That's, I mean, look at the news stories. New York parent seeks okay to marry their own adult child. That's last month. And here's another one. Consensual incest should be decriminalized, advocates say. And this is a group that is working in 80 countries of the world to decriminalize incest saying that if you want to marry your daughter or you want to marry your son and live with them in a sexual relationship, you should be able to do that. My friends, this is all grievously against the heart of God in His design. This is total depravity. You see, this is a true revolution that is occurring. I want you to see this. What is a true revolution? A true revolution is this. A revolution not only, not only does it, um, excuse me, in a revolution, not only is, uh, the new regime have, does the new regime have control, but the old regime, look at this, the old regime is silenced and eliminated or sent into hiding. If you think about it, you know, in the Congo, or you think about it in Morocco, or you think about it in various other places where there's been a revolution, the former regime is pushed out and silenced. In fact, if you stand with the former regime, you very often will be cut down. It's not allowed. It's, you're not allowed to stand and be involved with that. Notice this. Everyone is forced to declare hail to the king. Well, that's where we are in this sexual revolution. 
You see, Christians must realize, fill this in, Christians must realize that their surrounding society is now opposed to their biblical views of morality, and it is intent on neutralizing them, or perhaps stigmatizing them. This goes back to Isaiah 5, verse 20, that the good is being called evil and evil is being called good. It's time, and this is the picture where Christians are forced, fill in, and Christians are forced to decide with whom they stand, popular culture or creator God. It's time to decide. Because you can't stand on both sides. How do we stand with God? Very quickly, I want you to see this. Number one, we stand confidently with God. You can stand confidently with God. We as a church can stand confidently with God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 and verse 35 and 36. Look at it, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We're holding on to Christ and all that he teaches. And then down in verse 35 it says, therefore do not throw away your confidence confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hebrews is all about don't leave Christ. Don't leave Christ. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to his teaching. Hold on to his glory. Hold on to his plan. We can do this confidently because God has a certain reward for his children. Number two, we stand lovingly. We stand with God lovingly. We correct gently. And here's the picture. You see, the fallen world, and here's their slogan. Their fallen world is saying, is currently saying, love what? Wins. The idea is love wins. Love wins over your, what they would say is hate of something that you don't agree with. But the fallen world says love wins. But the true church is called, and currently we are called to say, no, love warns. Love warns. Love remains true to God, and love warns those who are headed for certain destruction. You see, fill these in. Love warns of danger. Love warns of danger. That's what our sign says right now, this morning, out on Sheridan Street. Love warns of danger, and sin is dangerous. So it's not about hate. It's not about phobia. It's not about fear. We're not afraid of those things, but they have coined those phrases in order to move us into silence or submission, when what we say is, I has nothing to do with not loving. I love enough to warn. You see, notice this, that gentleness is part of this. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should re restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this is talking about within the church as Christians, but we see that we can do this, and we see that this is the way toward moving people to see the good gospel in which we proclaim in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21. Which do you prefer? Shall I come to you with the rod or in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul is a little bit threatening to them, and he's saying to them, 
don't, don't make me have to be strong with you all. I want to come in a gentle spirit. That's how we should be. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy how a pastor should begin correction. <laughs> he must gently reprove those who oppose him. Gently. My friends, Part of the reason the world has rejected our message is because Christians have done it so unlovingly. That is not helpful in the picture of things, to love in the midst of standing in the truth. Well, number three, we stand vigilantly. We must be vigilant in our stand. This is what family camp is about. This is what a Bible-teaching church should be about. That we must, look at what First Peter says in verse 5 through 8. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about, around like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire, devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith. Underline that. Standing firm in the faith. Don't leave the faith. Don't leave the teachings of God. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And indeed, we will suffer as we stand with God. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This, this, this is not assuming that the genders are the same. I mean, there is the picture, there's the natural picture, there's the common sense picture of strength related to not toxic masculinity but healthy masculinity and the beauty of femininity that God has designed for us to be. And here we just see a reference to saying, be strong. Don't, don't act like somebody who's a weak person. Be strong. Act like a true soldier in this. Stand firm in the faith. Well, we stand confidently, lovingly. We stand vigilantly. Listen to this. Number four, we must stand redemptively. Jesus has called us to preach the redemption that he offers, not only for our own lives and for those of you in this room that maybe you've never come to Christ, or maybe you would say, well, pastor, no one knows this, but I deal with these SSA things myself, or I've dealt with some of the things that you mentioned. Listen, you've come to the right place. The glory of the gospel is being proclaimed here. And I want you to read this text. Look what it says. It's so filled with God's grace. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That's a key phrase. Don't be deceived. Because that's what happens. People become deceived. They're told a lie. They believe a lie. They listen to a voice inside instead of listening to the word of God. They become deceived. That's what happens. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Now, that, that's, that's everything sexually immoral. And what is anything that's immoral? It is sexuality outside the confounds of male-female marriage. That's what God designed. We read it in Genesis 1. That's what he says. So, neither the sexually immoral. That means the guy with a porn problem. That means the gal with an adultery problem. That means the, the teenager that is, that is rejecting God and pursuing his own lust, this is, this is all sexual immorality. We cannot be marked by sexual morality, giving in to sexual morality and, and identified with this. Look what it says, neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, 
nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God's Word is very clear. But look at verse 11. This is beautiful. And such were some of you. He's saying some of you used to be these things. But look what happened. Look at verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That means made right. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the same Spirit that moved over the waters of creation. It's the same Spirit that moves over the ones that He is saving out of their sin. And it can be the sin of greed. It can be the sin of um, all kinds of other uh, sexual immoralities or the sins of vices, swindlers, thieves. It's not just about homosexuality. It's not just about homosexuals. It can be just as much about heterosexuals. God has called us to see that the gospel redeems us from these great sins of dishonoring his design and his picture. Brothers and sisters, this is indeed a break-the-glass moment. You need to recognize that your family, and for some of you, your own faith is in danger because of the messages of the world and the thinking of the world. God calls us to know what He's done, to know what He says, and how to live in it. And the greatest way that we live in it, the beginning of all of that, is coming to know Jesus. The one who says, I love you just like you are. I can rescue you from everything in your mind and your heart. I can rescue you from your sin. Whatever your struggle is, there is love found in me. And I have the power to create. Listen to this. I have the power to recreate. I can take care of your problem. Now, I am so encouraged that there are men and women in this room who were serial adulterers, who did not remain true to their marriage, that have come to Jesus and been healed and set free from that. I am thankful that there are people in this room that were convicted by the state of Florida and by the state of New York and by the state of Illinois of fraud, and they've come to Jesus, and God has come, and He's set them free from that. I am thankful that we have we have folks that have served on staff in the life of this church that were bound in homosexuality and bound in other vices, and God set them free from these sins. My friend, this is not a message of hate. Oh no, this is a message of love. This is a true message of love. This is a message of God's love of God's grace, that he says, come and let me rescue you out of it all. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will see that my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
Jesus will set you free if you will let him do it. Would you stand with me for prayer? Holy Father, how we rejoice that you indeed are the creator and that we are not. Lord, how we rejoice that you indeed, when you create, it is good and that all things are right and true. Father, we thank you this morning that you have called us to leave behind a fallen and sinful world and hold on to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That we've been called to let go of the sin that so easily entangles us and run the race with endurance that leads to the kingdom of God. Father, how I pray that this morning that that indeed would be the heartbeat in our chest. Lord, that our heart would be to honor you. And Lord, I pray for those maybe this morning that they've never heard that God can make them right, that God can heal them from their troubles and their struggles, whatever they may be, whether it be alcoholism or drugs or anger or adultery or pornography or homosexuality or various other views. Maybe it's been from being molested in the past in the great agony of that, and that somehow we've been bound in a prison of something that happened many years ago, when you are saying, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let go of the things of this world and hold on to the one who created all things and can recreate you. Lord, I pray for that. I pray for your power in our lives in these days. I pray that family camp would be a, a great source of strength, that families would be rescued from the, building, from the burning building, that we would recognize that, Lord, it's time to stand with you, to be careful about our lives, and, Lord, to enjoy the riches that you promise forevermore. In the glorious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.